0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 273 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Lime Warrior, an interview with Lauren Lovejoy. My name is Richard Johanneson.
1: And I'm Matt Sabatello.
0: Folks, one of the great service organizations in the Lime community is Lime Warrior. They're well known for many of their powerful programs, including Support a Little Lime Warrior, their really powerful and in inspirational apparel, their virtual 5K race, and their really powerful. Lyme disease awareness campaigns and the founder of this organization is Lauren Lovejoy who is someone we've been excited to interview for a long time and folks I think you're going to understand why this organization is such a powerhouse in our community doing so much to serve folks in our community once you get to know Lauren Lovejoy. So we are really excited to introduce to you Lauren Lovejoy the Lyme Warrior. Hello Lauren Lovejoy and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast.
2: Thank you so much happy to be here.
0: We're really excited to have you, Lauren, and we've been big fans of you and your organization for a long time. So why don't you first introduce your organization to our community?
2: Absolutely. So I am founder of Lime Warrior. Um, it was a passion project that started out of this horrific journey that grew from selling a couple t-shirts out of my bedroom to a nonprofit that's really reached uh, across the nation and into other parts of the country and just so excited that there's an amazing community that we're able to help and serve.
0: And it is really a cool organization doing so many cool things. I mean, I, you know, I was on your uh, on your site this morning and there were just several things that were sort of jumped out at me. I mean, I love your support. The Little Lime Warrior program. Why don't you talk to us about that first?
2: Absolutely. So uh, one of the biggest things is we get a lot of parents who have children with Lyme disease. So everybody in the family is kind of in it together and doesn't know what to do. And the children, they aren't able to go to school. They aren't able to participate in normal lives like adults do. Well, adults, we have a lot of coping me- mechanisms and we understand. Kids don't. They are experiencing extreme isolation. They don't understand. So they are almost so much more at risk of the mental health issue. So we started sending boxes of goodies just as a, hey, there's somebody else out there that really cares about you and like believes that you're going to get better and we're behind you even if you can't see us. And the results were just that kids smiled for the first time in months of illness. And it was so amazing to hear what the parents reported back about these things. We started including letters from other children, encouraging them to like, stay strong, and you'll get through this, and it's going to be okay. And we found that these were really turning points for little kids that people acknowledge what they were going through and understood them, even if they didn't fully understand it themselves. So that's just been something that it's, uh, you know, sending boxes of toys is one thing, but the implication it has on a little child's life who's going through this has really been amazing.
0: That is amazing. And thank you so much for, uh, for creating that awesome program. So talk to us about your virtual 5K.
2: Yep. Um, so essentially, we are trying to figure out excuses for our community to gather. Like, you know, we're all Lyme patients. So like the last thing we want to do is get outside and run. But we found that it was a good way to connect people demographically, like, hey, I have a community, I'm going to go run around in my backyard. And by run, I mean sort of walk and limp through and sit in my chair. But it was a great way to kind of encourage that conversation and create communities. And we like to show the map that people across the United States are doing whatever they can to come out and join together. So it's a great way just as a nation, show up for Live Awareness Month, wear some green, be obnoxious and get the word out. You know, sometimes we just need an excuse to... Do that and get up off out of whatever funk and struggle we're going through. So that was kind of just an extra excuse to share awareness about Lime these months.
0: So, the first thing I wanted to highlight with you before we got started talking about your story is uh, apparel and the role that apparel is playing in inspiring people uh, to um, go through this battle in a very powerful way. So, talk to us about the Lime Warrior apparel that you've developed.
2: Yep. Uh, So essentially, lime Warrior was not something I came up with. Obviously, it was something that people self identified way before I was sick and understood what that was. And everybody says, I'm a lime Warrior. But there wasn't anybody who had shirts that said that or there was very, very few, which we were like, well, if this is an identity, and we can connect with each other, why wouldn't we make such a thing? So The first thing I did is I went into the communities on Facebook, reached out to other people and I said, what are you going through? Tell me about it. And I made a bunch of quotes from those people's responses and I put it on a T-shirt and I said, it says not a choice. Uh, I didn't choose to have this disease. I didn't choose to be sick. I didn't choose. And it has all these lists of um, what people go through. That was the first T-shirt I ever made. and borrowed money from a friend to sell them and they caught on like hotcakes that people were able to say, well, this is not my choice. But at the end of it says I did choose to be a warrior. I am somebody who chooses to stand up and keep going through this and fight to get better. So that to us was like, well, why can't we tell other people? Why shouldn't we have these shirts to really create this? So we're really excited that the brand has really caught on because people are using this as a conversation starter. We're finding that people they go out and they walk past a car and they see our bumper sticker and they go and they talk to that person. And they say, Hey, you're a Lyme warrior too. And it's facilitating these connections or even, you know, somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, my uncle has Lyme disease and he's really struggling. Do you know anything about it? Are you, are you going through it? And we're finding these are such conversation starters. So it's not a t-shirt, you know, it's a conversation starter. It's a community connector. It's a mechanism for you to tell the story and be receptive in your own life. And so we consider it a a messaging a brand a way to be an advocate without working too awful hard
0: <laughs> uh, that is awesome so let's let's talk about uh the gal who inspired so many people come together and form this community uh known as Lime Warrior so where where are you from
2: I am from Newport Virginia it's a small town outside Blacksburg uh raised in Southwest Virginia country, grew up on conventional cattle farms and ran around playing in the woods as a child. See, how did I get Lyme? But I did not get it as a child, so I will preface it with that.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk about whether you did or didn't get it during your childhood. <laughs> that's something that we'll have to develop together. But let's talk a little bit more about what it was like growing up in uh, rural Virginia. What kinds of things were you doing during your childhood? Uh, and what were your interests?
2: Um. You know, very, very simple childhood childhood. Uh, Grew up in the country, had lots of friends, did very normal things like uh, rode horses, uh, part of band in high school and just uh, no no amazing childhood story. Just very traditional, had a great family. And, you know, life was uh, pretty easy. <laughs>
0: All right. So you had you had this privileged beginning to life. And what were your what were your dreams, what were your goals during that phase of your life?
2: Yep. So uh, eventually I. We moved to Blacksburg to be in the town and have a little more socialization. So we've moved out of the country and I started like getting more involved and like, what are you gonna do with the rest of your life? And I uh, was always drawn to business. I wanted to go into consulting. I wanted to work for Capital One and be this big, amazing businesswoman and solve all these problems. My goal for a little while was I was going to save the music industry. I was going to use data and analytics to figure out why the music industry was collapsing. So I had a huge passion for uh, rock and heavy metal. I was very cool back in the day. Um, (laughs) I worked in tattoo shops throughout college. Like, you know, I just was into a lot of things, Um, but I had a lot of jobs. that I was very professional. I was always in college seeking my master's degree. I was doing a lot of professional, but in my spare time, I was out in you know dive bars and punk bands and doing all this stuff even since a teenager which followed me into college so again just trying to figure out a weird way to combine being a professional and doing things that really mattered was always kind of in my blood and, but also then on the weekends kind of you know mom I'm in a mosh pit again and <laughs> you know she's going gray early um but you know so I, I put some gray hairs on my parents heads but I, I sure had a heck of a lot of fun during that time
0: <laughs> so. so you you're the kind of gal that was living hard and playing hard
2: I was, I I was up at 4am, I would go to a CrossFit gym in the morning, I would go work my attorney's job. And then I would go to grad school at night. And then on the weekends, I was at a punk rock show or doing promotions for a band or something like that. So I was very busy.
0: (laughs) So Lauren, talk to us about, um, talk to us about uh, when you first started to feel the symptoms of what you now know to be uh, your Lyme disease.
2: Yep. Um, so I don't have a slow decline story. I actually very, very immediately got sick. Um, again, I was very cool. So I was out in the woods shooting rifles on a weekend and remember getting C ticks on me, thought nothing of it moved on. Um, so, uh, about a week later, I was driving to Atlanta to get a full sleeve tattoo. And about halfway through my drive, I had a earth shattering anxiety attack and I had never had anxiety in my entire life. I had to pull over by myself in the middle of nowhere, somewhere between South Carolina and Georgia. And I had this full body trembling out-of-body experience. It passed within about 45 minutes. And basically my life was never really the same again. My autonomic system never calmed down. I started having neurological symptoms and I started having all these really crazy things happen. And Basically, over the next two months, I just started having symptoms that I couldn't deal with, and within two months, I was bed bound, where I couldn't sit up, and I was having extreme vertigo all the time, along with tons of other symptoms.
0: So let's unpack that story a little bit. I want to—it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I want to focus on the on the tick bite first. So, so you said you had three ticks biting you at one time.
2: I had seed ticks on me. So we had been walking through seed ticks, the little mini nymph ticks. um, And they were all crawling up by legs, dozens of them, you know, me and uh, the person I was with, we both had them, came home, got them off of us and never thought about it again.
0: Okay. So do you know how many of these seed ticks were on you that you had to take off prior to, of course, all of these other events developing?
2: Maybe about three attached, but you know, a dozen on me and I'm from the country. We do that. It's (laughs) fairly normal.
0: Right. So when you say it was fairly normal, does that mean you recall having been bitten by ticks during your childhood and prior to that period of time? Or was that the first time you really remember being bitten by ticks?
2: Uh, You know, childhood in the country, I do remember that ticks were part of us. I don't have any vivid memories of attached ticks or anything like that. Um, And quite honestly, I didn't remember the seed tick incident until I, after I was diagnosed and I went back and I went, when was I around ticks? Like because I lived in the city during college, there's not a lot of time. So it took a while to dig through those memories and even remember when that happened, so. Okay,
0: so. You said you grew up in rural Virginia. You had this, uh, you said normal childhood riding horses. That's not normal to me. I've only ridden a horse. (laughs) once.
2: It's normal for the rest of us out here in the middle of (laughs) nowhere.
0: So uh, so talk to us about what you knew about ticks, either as someone who would be husbanding a horse or, you know, interacting with uh, companion animals. I mean, were you aware of ticks during your childhood and were you aware that they caused a threat to your
2: health? I was not. So ticks are part of life. Uh, We pulled them off the dogs, we pulled them off the horses, you know, but you get rid of them and you just, you've heard of people getting sick, but I was under the understanding that doxycycline would solve it, but nobody I knew got sick. So again, ticks were part of life and maybe that was just an odd thing that happened. So it was not common knowledge and it was definitely not something I knew about even when I got it. (laughs)
0: So you weren't given any advice either from your parents or from your friends or from any of the educational experiences that you had that led you to believe that ticks could create a threat to your health and you need to protect yourself from coming in contact with these vectors.
2: Nope, absolutely not. It was all not something to be worried about. It was part of life and part of nature and uh, I, I spent my time educating my parents after that and teaching them, so. <laughs> right, well, Lauren, <laughs> but you, when you say a it's a
0: part of life and a part of nature, we all understand that, that it is a part of life and it is a part of nature, but it's a part of life and a part of nature that you didn't fear. You didn't have any concerns about it, correct? No,
2: no concerns before uh, being educated.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, so now let's talk about that experience where you had the, you know, the seed ticks biting you and and your friend. um you didn't know that you could take some steps to protect yourself from becoming acutely or chronically ill. So you just, you just went about living your life, despite having these ticks, uh, at least three of them attached to you and perhaps even more.
2: Yep. It was not even in my consciousness that that might be something that would change my life forever.
0: Now, after you were, after you were bitten by the, uh, the seed ticks, um did you check your friend and your friend check you i mean did you go through a process of making sure you had no other ticks on your body anywhere else at any time after that
2: uh yeah Uh, well uh, ticks are gross right like so i definitely like made sure that they were all removed but just made sure that they were off but again no rashes no anything that would show up to give us any reason to think more of it than we thought
0: now, when you say there were no rashes, I mean, were you really taking time to check your entire body for some window of time after the bite? Could it, is it possible you could have had a rash in some parts of your body that you weren't checking during the window after the bites?
2: Uh, so they were all on our, on my ankles and on my legs, um, which it was summer. I did see them. So I did look and I am fairly sure that I never had any kind of rashes or anything. I'm fairly, you know, I'm very white, so it's not too hard to find rashes on me. So you know, I, I do not think that I ever developed any rashes from it. Uh, yeah.
0: But Lauren, just because you have fair skin doesn't mean that uh, if you had a rash in, on the back of your neck behind your hair or in your or, or in your hairline or on your back, because we can only see the front of us when we're looking in the mirror, that you would have necessarily have seen it if you didn't have, you know, some other person helping you to be attentive to, uh, you know, the possibility that you had a rash.
2: Yes, it is definitely possible. <laughs>
0: So let's talk about uh, let's talk about now the things that happened after that because it, you you had a pretty quick um, you know pretty quick development of your illness right I mean you got sick very quickly and it was yes. really bad right away
2: yes <laughs> um, so when
0: when you yes. um when you when you got sick uh and and you had for example the the moment where you're now um beginning to feel the mental health elements of your illness you, you, the mental health symptoms did you go to a doctor.
2: Oh, I went to all the doctors, caught them all.
0: <laughs> so when you when you had the anxiety attack, for example, um, that was the trigger that brought you to a doctor right away? Or did you go to a doctor after other symptoms developed?
2: I went to a doctor after other symptoms developed. I would say it was about a week and a half before I booked an appointment with a primary care doctor to uh, figure out what was going on. I, I had hoped I had had a random anxiety attack and maybe this is what your 20s were about is new sicknesses and illnesses. And then a week later when it was quickly compounding. I started to seek help.
0: Okay. So um, when you first went to a doctor, what symptoms did you describe to the doctor? And then what was the doctor's response to your, your description of your symptoms?
2: Um, So I, I didn't have a primary care doctor. So this is the first time this man has ever met me, no history. Um, And I go in and I say, I've always had a little bit of an overreactive autonomic system. I always like just didn't do well in the heat. I always was a little shaky whatever was wrong with me is so much worse. I am shaking all the time. I struggle to hold myself up. If I am sitting or if I'm standing, I feel like I'm going to pass out and I don't know what's wrong with me. And I'm having tons of anxiety. I don't know what's going on. And you can guess what he said. He said, well, here's an antidepressant. Good luck. Um, And on I went. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so it sounded like you were beginning to describe very classic POTS sim- symptoms. Did, uh, did the doctor suggest to you that perhaps you were you were dealing with something more than just uh, a mental health issue?
2: No. My doctor said you are a girl who works too hard, and this is clearly a mental health issue.
0: Okay. So what happened after that? Um, how did your symptoms develop, and what doctors did you say?
2: Um, So... Uh- I persisted with him. I kept saying it is not and I am not taking SSRIs. I was not interested in taking those at that time. So I persisted. He ran me through test after test after test, of course, within the primary care, um, during which that time I became completely unable to work and basically became bed bound within those two months. So my entire life became finding another primary care going to the secondary specialist that they recommended to And I essentially just spent my time going to doctors who didn't know me to try to get validation and somebody to continue to run tests. But I probably did more blood work that year than in the entire rest of my life. And everything was normal, healthy, stressed out, 20 something year old.
0: (laughs) So Lauren, when you, well, again, I I think it's easy to sort of write off symptoms as a, as symptoms of a, of a, you know, a person who's burning the candle at both ends, a, you know, a, a, a person who's living a, you know, a high stress life when you first walk in, but your initial doctor sees you go from, you know, a person who's working really hard to a person who's bed bound in a very short window of time. I mean, what was that doctor's reaction that you, you know, that you were declining so quickly? Did that doctor continue to believe or suggest to you that these, these symptoms were uh, developing mental health symptoms or did the doctor begin to pivot away from that initial diagnosis and suggest that perhaps you should be looking at other, um, diagnoses?
2: Um, so I'll, I'll, in all fairness, this is spread over about 60 doctors, you know, so I, I went through them because they were not listening to me. And they kept saying mental health. And I they said, I'm not going to do anything but refer you to a mental health specialist. And I went to therapists and I went. And uh, I actually had a therapist diagnose me with um, generalized anxiety disorder. And basically the therapist said, there's nothing wrong with you either. So I ran into this wall of nobody believed me from therapy to doctors. And I just I would fire them and go to the next one and fire them and go to the next one because nobody cared what I was going through. And even when I got to neurology at Duke, and I didn't fit in the categories, I didn't have POTS, I didn't have MS, I didn't fit the buckets, and they did not know what to do. And they said, well, you can either take some of these medications and try it. And I refused. And then I became a combative patient that would not comply with what they wanted. And there just was no one who wanted to help me.
0: So you, you, you gave a number a moment ago, the number of doctors you saw from the time that you saw your first primary care physician until the time that you received your diagnosis. And was I correct in hearing that you said you saw 60 doctors, six zero?
2: 60. Yes.
0: Okay. So um, now... One of the things that we always find interesting when we hear, you know, the stories that we hear like yours and and, and they seem to be the pattern seems to repeat itself, especially with young women, um, is that when we interview Dr. Leo Shea, what he shared with us um, is that he believes that every single uh, mental health uh, presentation has some physiological basis that you have to look beyond the symptom to try to get to the, um, you know, the basis or the physiological reason for the, for the um, uh, psychological presentation. Did any of your doctors who were diagnosing you with clearly defined uh, psychiatric or psychological symptoms ever say to you, this is what we're looking at now, and now let's look beyond that and get to what is driving this presentation?
2: You know, it was attempted in various forms. Uh, I also in that list of doctors did see functional medicine doctors who were more focused on those underlying causes. Um, uh, I, I won't spoil a little bit of the ending of the story but there was some other condition going on and the underlying thing that was that I finally did identify later. And I will tell you that in those 60 doctors Even the ones looking at the cause, none of them caught them either. So uh, it was looked and Western medicine just could not get to the root cause of the problem.
0: Okay. So now I want to ask a question about this issue and then I'm going to talk to you about your research before, before I turn you over to Matt. Um, did any of the 60 doctors at any time ever suggest to you that Lyme was a potential cause for the symptoms that you were presenting to them?
2: Um, so I was given a Lyme test by one of my primary care doctors at one point, my, my favorite one, the one who tried the hardest and it came back negative and we tried it again and it came back negative. And I was issued a state form that says Western blot test is not a standard that we can measure by your negative tests don't mean anything. And I have that paper and it still was not acknowledged. I didn't have Lyme according to the test and it was swept under the rug. Okay, so let's so
0: pause there So, okay. <laughs> you, so you, you take you take the Western blot twice, correct? Yes. And the Western blot does not does not indicate that you had Lyme disease, correct. but you're but you are given, and this is this is interesting, you are given a paper that says that the Western blot is not a test that is definitive on determining whether or not you have Lyme disease. So let's open the possibility that a clinical diagnosis should be considered by you and your doctor.
2: It should have been, yes.
0: Okay. Uh, what did that mean to you at the time? And then what did that mean relating to the interaction between you and your doctor when you had that paper that said, this test is not definitive.
2: I put it in my stack of 200 other papers of all the other things I didn't have as well.
0: <laughs> okay. and. Uh, it, in addition to the doctor giving you the paper that said that this is not a definitive test, the doctor talked with you about the possibility that you still may have Lyme disease and that you would have to make a clinical analysis of your symptoms before before discarding that diagnosis.
2: Nope. He was not conscious of the clinical diagnosis. He used the testing as the standard.
0: Okay. Do you have any opinion about why that doctor, despite that doctor being your favorite doctor, was so quick to dismiss the diagnosis with the test?
2: Because he's not uh, because doctors are not educated on it. They are not taught to look for those things. They're also not taught to look for many other conditions that Lyme patients deal with of mold, parasite and metals. So. Uh, the reason I say he was my favorite is he didn't give up on me, you know, so all these other doctors that basically said, take an, and I, you know, take an SSRI or get out of my office, he at least kept trying. He kept looking. And even when we got to Lyme, he said, well, I'll run the test twice at least, you know, and he said that it's maybe. So I, I stick to that. He was my favorite because he gave an attempt and he gave an option that Lyme could have been on the table. But I will tell you that even when I came back to him later with a diagnosis of Lyme, he was not hundred percent sure that was all it.
0: So. So let me ask you another question about your favorite doctor. Do you think it's possible that your favorite doctor was not willing to step away from a test and consider a clinical diagnosis because your favorite doctor was rewarded for doing that? Because there are risks to doctors who are willing to uh, analyze Lyme disease clinically because they don't have a test that they could fall back on. And therefore, they may or may not be paid by the insurance company. And they may or may not uh, have license um, evaluated because they are treating someone with a clinical diagnosis rather than having a test to cover their butt.
2: Um, So he was a very smart doctor. Uh, He was very conscious of those concerns, but he found ways to work around them. So when I needed things later that were outside the confines, he would find ways to write it in so that it was up and up on the insurance that he was not in question. So he was somebody that would go out of his way for patients. But again, I think it really came back to his understanding of the disease was not there where it needed to be. So I definitely agree. There are doctors out there that are not willing to stick their neck out and not willing to do it. Um, but there are also other ones who are trying to fudge in the guidelines and trying to be the best advocate they can. So both.
0: <laughs> yes, but but I, I really believe that when you have when you put a doctor in a position where a doctor is not only going to have to work hard and think outside of the box, but also maybe put themselves in a position where they are personally vulnerable, you, you have a system that is not a system that's designed to get you to a, diag- a proper diagnosis. And I'm wondering what your reaction to that is, because it sounds like you really, really love this doctor and this doctor really worked hard for you, but I'm just wondering whether or not this doctor's failure despite being a really smart doctor um, was really driven by the box that this doctor was forced to work within. And perhaps if, if unshackled, your diagnosis may have been discovered earlier.
2: Well, of course though, so, but that's Western medicine. Doctors are given a template, and when you fall outside that template or outside an FDA regulation or whatever, doctors can't help you, not because they do or do not want to, but because they're going to lose their whole medical license. So he and every other person I saw has a family, has medical debt. They don't want to lose all that. They want to help people to the extent they can. So I don't take it as like the doctors are lazy or unmotivated. It's that we have an entire system. That puts you in boxes to be diagnosed with pharmaceutical conditions and given those. And if you don't have an acknowledged pharmaceutical condition, you don't count. So it's a system error rather than an individual doctor, you know, and we do have doctors who stick up and advocate, but I don't find that one doctor's lack of willingness to go against the grain and fight the machine because we have those, right. And they're amazing. And they have gotten their butts kicked all over. So it's a whole system. The Western medical system fails Lyme patients and fails lots of other conditions that are not the right conditions to be fixed by pharma.
0: So let's explore that in a little more detail because, you know, I I, I often like to debate these kinds of issues with folks who, you know, make, make these general observations about Western medicine because, um, you know, there, there are many folks who argue, hey, you know, Western medicine doesn't train doctors adequately to diagnose and treat Lyme disease. And then I bring up examples of Western doctors who were, in fact, adequately trained to diagnose and treat Lyme disease. Here on Long Island, for example, in the 70s and 80s, we're talking about when I was young. We had doctors like Dr. Burascano and and Dr. McDonald, who are, you know, two western trained doctors who were working in a tick endemic community who made all kinds of discoveries about uh how to diagnose and treat Lyme disease in the 70s and the 80s so they were trained adequately to diagnose to discover diagnose and treat these illnesses so is it really a training issue is it an education issue or is it something else
2: you know, I think the, the testing is always the big barrier, right? Like so even though we're talking about Lyme disease and you know, McDonald and all these people, we're talking about Lyme tests. Well, what about co-infection tests? What about other strains? So if we don't even have a testing that is standardized, how are we all supposed to go off of that? So let's just assume we don't have a reliable test and we're out in no man's land. What's to differentiate Lyme disease from all these other multi-systemic diseases? It's kind of the wild, wild west of symptoms. It gets wild, so I think that the standardized testing is just one of the biggest barriers to educating on clinical diagnosis. Yes, of course, iLabs is great that we're educating doctors. We're getting people out there to get closer, but with no test, it still feels very, very wild. And I do understand how doctors get caught in this loop of not knowing where to stand on the issue.
0: Sure, and I agree with you. I agree with you on that point. But What I'm arguing to you is these guys didn't have a test. They didn't didn't have any training.
2: But they guessed, right? So they're like, maybe it's lime. Well, what if it was heavy metals? What if it was parasites? What if it was mold? Those are all so very similar. Statistically, they're probably right because of where they lived and where it was endemic. But so let's go out to the desert where it's not very, it was not as common. You can see why doctors would not be as educated in it just because there was not the presence and the density of the ticks over there.
0: But, 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 they, but they had adequate training and education to diagnose and treat the disease, even though it was a new presentation, which is really what Western medicine does. It gives them the scientific method that allows them to go through the process of clinically diagnosing people with diseases that hadn't been discovered before because their training is adequate to do that. The problem, of course is the American medical system or the state-specific medical system, which is putting them in a box and not allowing them to use the training that they have to diagnose and treat these illnesses that they are adequately trained to diagnose and treat. What are your thoughts about that?
2: I, I just think it's so great. I think it's all over the place because you say adequately trained to do. Well, what does adequately trained mean? Well, that's 30 days of doxycycling would be the argument. But I will go ahead and tell you, I don't believe in that. I don't believe that's the solution either. So, well, you right, know. That's, that's <laughs> not what
0: Bierscano was doing. Dr. Bierscano was not treating people with 30 days of Dr. Sexton. In fact, what he was doing was he was one of the earliest doctors in the 80s, the early 80s, pulsing um, um, antibiotics, putting, giving people that uh, antibiotics for, in some cases, years, which is why they attacked his medical license. So he had. But I, I,
2: I don't think that's adequate. I will tell you, as somebody who did a year and a half of pulsed antibiotics and did not recover, that that is not always adequate. So, we have no standardization of treatment. We have no defined protocol. So, again, if we can't diagnose, we have no standardized treatment. No wonder everybody is in a mess over this. And until we can find how to properly understand this disease and have real treatments, it's all the wild, wild west of everybody's trying things and doing their best. And that's why I just, I have a hard time criticizing the people who are doing any kind of work on it because at least they're trying. The bad doctors were the ones who didn't care to try in any way, shape, or form to me.
0: So let's, let's focus now on your diagnosis. So when did you finally get diagnosed with Lyme disease despite having classic Lyme disease symptoms for quite some period of time?
2: So my, my defining moment was a very horrible one and one that does not attest to my personality very well. Um, as you can tell, I went through doctors and they were giving me answers. And by that time I had just had it, you know, I was 26 year old disabled from, you know, overnight and I had had it. And if doctors weren't going to fix me, I was basically going to scream my way until somebody was going to help me. So I was trying to get into a private functional medicine clinic in North Carolina and the PA called me and he was like, I'm sorry, we can't take you because you're out of state. We're booked up. And I unloaded on this poor sweet PA who didn't know me from anybody else. And I told him, I was like, I am tired of this. I am tired of this system. I am tired of all the BS. Like, tell me what I need to do. And he said, Well, have you considered that you might have Lyme disease? And I was like, I've been tested. I don't have it. That's not it. What else you got? And he said, I, I think it sounds like Lyme disease. I don't know, and I'm not giving you medical advice, but you should check out a you know a clinic in DC um, and go there and see. And I said, I think you're full of it. Shut up. You're not helping me. Goodbye. Um, and after that phone call, if you can imagine my bad attitude, didn't have me winning a lot of friends and, uh, opening up a lot of doors for me. So I ended up going to this clinic in DC just because I had nowhere else to go. I could not get referrals, uh, past neurological. Like I had seen every specialist, there were not any more doors to open pretty much at that point. So I ended up at the clinic in D.C. um, and went through the igenex testing. It came back nonspecific, but I came out with a clinical diagnosis of Lyme disease.
0: So now let's talk about your 60-doctor journey, right? Because one of the things that we focus on in this podcast is pivoting, when to pivot and when not to pivot, right? And the balance sort of that you have to strike is you have to be coachable, right? You have to be able to take advice from the people who have Um, You know the education, the training to understand these medical frameworks, but at the same time, you have to make sure that you are working with somebody who is speaking to you and listening to you and working with you to come up with a treatment plan that works for you. So, when, what tools did you use to decide when you were going to pivot away from a doctor? And do you think at times you pivoted too quickly?
2: You know, I don't think I pivoted too quickly. Like, yes, I will definitely attest to I was not a good patient. I was not reciprocal and I was not very coachable at that point. But what was different is I went in and they would say, well, I usually find that people have success with X, Y, and Z drug." Well, I've always been very sensitive to pharmaceuticals and they've just never made me feel good. So I would try, uh, and no surprise, like I didn't feel better. Like so, they would be blood pressure drugs or SSRIs or things. And so I tried a handful in the beginning, and I just kept getting worse with every single one I tried, even for like a handful of days. So I would come off of them. And when doctors just approached me and said, "Here's a pharmaceutical," and I kept saying pharmaceuticals are not helping, I did become in this combative that I was not coachable. But I was so tired of getting worse, and I was getting very scared. That getting worse might not ever have a, a backtrack, so I stopped taking things and I stopped being receptive, and I would not take anything unless somebody could prove to me a very logical thing that I may or may not have. And with every single one of those sixty doctors, not a single diagnosis of anything besides dysautonomia was given. So why should I follow them?
0: <laughs> well, right. So, but, but uh, so you 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 were describing yourself. You're a self-described, at that window in your, in your journey, a not a good patient, right?
2: No, I was a terrible patient. <laughs> okay.
0: so, so do you believe that there are things that, again, in retrospect, you might have done differently that might have made it so that you could have had a better partnership with the medical professionals that you were working with and perhaps put yourself in a position where, where you may have been able to get to a diagnosis earlier?
2: I found that my attitude didn't change how they cared about me, that if I was combative, they would treat me the same way as if I was sweeter than sugar and pie. Like it didn't matter. I was a woman who had non-specific symptoms that they didn't know how to take care of. And I, I tried different methods. I, I was very nice sometimes, and it didn't get me anywhere. What got me somewhere was saying you have to do better. And I'm not going to take the first drug you just try at me. And I definitely burned a lot of bridges made a lot of people who didn't want to see me again. But I, I advocated myself and I did not continue to poison myself with drugs that weren't helping.
0: So Lauren, one of the things that we've heard doctors share with us is that in many cases, having um, a, a second person in the, in the room when they're, when they're working with a patient is helpful to both the doctor and the patient. Uh, did you ever bring anyone else with you to your doctor's appointments to, um, to either help you in um, interpreting what the doctor was saying or helping the doctor interpret what you were trying to share with the doctor?
2: I did. Um, I, I actually had a lot of people go with me as because this took years, right? So it took about two years to see those 60 doctors. Um, my parents went together separately. Um, some of my friends ended up driving me to appointments. So I did have people. Um, I do have to say in my journey, I have always been very clear. Uh, I definitely have brain fog, but my ability to articulate myself and be clear was never really compromised. So people did go with me, but they would just kind of see the same thing. The doctor of course would be nicer because there was an audience, but I didn't find that it still changed the outcome. Like they still, no matter what, they didn't have a toolkit that I fit into.
0: So now when you finally went to the clinic where you were diagnosed, was anything different in the way that you were treated there versus the way you had been treated during the 60 doctors that you had treated with prior to the uh, diagnosis?
2: It was a weird, different experience. And so when you go to these other places, you're the oddity and you, you walked in as the girl who's been there 10 times already and is back for your 700th round of blood work. That girl, oh, she's back. Um, as opposed to when I got to the clinic in DC, I was similar to everybody else. What I was saying was not different. And I was on the same schedule as everybody else there. So I felt not normal, but normal uh, being part of it. And I, they didn't have that shocked. I don't know what to do with her look. They're like, oh yeah, this is many patients experience this, this and this and this will happen. Here's some resources. So I felt that I was in a box again, but one that had a better fit for me sort
0: of. So when you say when you say you felt like you were in a box, are you saying that in a good way or in a bad way? Meaning did you walk in and say, hey, I feel at home. And this is a box that makes me feel comfortable. Or were you in a box that was constricting and you weren't being you were not going to be given the diverse consideration that your uh, symptoms needed?
2: So both (laughs) that time is actually very shortly after I started Lyme warrior, because I had a name for what I was going through. Like it was this unknown mystery illness. What's wrong with you? Well, I have these symptoms. I didn't have anything that I could call it. Once I had a diagnosis, I had a name and I was a Lyme warrior and I had words for what I was going through and I could find people. I could Google something that gave me an identity. So that's where Lyme warrior, I had, you know, a brand and an identity after that. And I will say, as I went through that clinic, there were people that understood the shifts, but long story short is I still did not recover from being in that clinic. And that I did fall outside their toolkit as well. There were some minor improvements, but I did not get my life back at that clinic and I did not significantly recover even after a year and a half there.
0: Okay, and Matt is gonna to talk to you about that. I just wanna talk, yeah. ask you a couple <laughs> more questions about the, about the, the 60 doctor journey. Um, when you were on the 60 doctor journey and you were, and you were describing your symptoms over and over and over to, to, uh, different doctors, did you ever take that symptomology and do your own research on Google or anywhere else that brought you back to Lyme?
2: Uh, not specifically back to Lyme. Uh, you know, I became a WebMD expert, but the problem was I had, I was like everybody. I'm like, well, I'm only going to look at reputable sources. I really didn't look at alternative, which is where Lyme lives heavily, right? Because I, I was not raised in alternative medicine. I was raised in Western medicine. All those doctors were the people that I went to and they were the authorities and Lyme doesn't come up in those. It's easily treatable. Well, the test was negative. So it, even in my research, those were not things that came up because I didn't find those to be credible sources, which is painfully ironic now.
0: <laughs> All right. So you, you were looking for traditional sources, right? You were looking yes. either for medical journals or you were looking for traditional sources. That's the only place you were looking because you didn't believe at that time that there were experts that were outside of the traditional sources, correct?
2: Correct. I was very much down neurological conditions and things like that.
0: But you only believe that experts were people who were publishing either academic articles or people who were in medical centers, Correct.
2: Uh, so we heavily leaned on universities and their leading doctors and those professionals, that's where I mostly look.
0: Okay. So now one of the things that we also often see with people who are diagnosed with Lyme disease is what we call it either bro science or sister science, where um, where you're talking about your, your symptoms in the community of people that you come in contact with, and somebody says to you, that sounds like Lyme disease. Do you have anything like that?
2: Not really. But that's because I couldn't I didn't have a name. Right. So if you're just shooting around, you don't know what group to join. Because if I had entered into a lime group, man, would have people told me? And man, right. would have I had an early intro? But no, in everything else, it was nobody else knew about it. I didn't have friends who knew about it. I, you know? It yeah, no, look, I mean, it, Yeah, look. <laughs> in
0: most cases, you're not going to find a Lyme group until you have a name for it. But in that many cases, <laughs> in many cases, we're we're seeing, uh, and I guess it depends on where you are and whether or not you're in a taking them a community or not. Uh, and and at this point, it's every community. But maybe at the time when you were going through your journey, the early parts of your journey, it wasn't in your community. Uh, but but I, I can tell you that a large number of people that we interview on this podcast will tell us, "Hey, I was at church and my mom was describing my symptoms to someone, and someone said." that sounds like Lyme disease or, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was at school and I was telling one of my friends what I was feeling and somebody said that was Lyme disease. So you never had any of that where you were describing your symptoms to people in your circle and someone said, uh, or somebody, and again, maybe the expansion of that someone in your family was talking about your symptoms and it came back from a, from a, um, a person in the community that perhaps you're dealing with Lyme disease.
2: No, and it's kind of a twofold problem. So I am in an endemic area, uh, basically up and down 81 in the corridor. We have all the national woods. We're in a super endemic place, but it's still not a disease here. Even though I know everybody and their brother around here has it, it's still not something that they'd say, oh, that's it. And then I'll also add a second layer is when I got sick, um, because I couldn't sit up, the only place I was comfortable was lying down. My life in isolation became extreme. You know, I... I got rid of my friends because I was embarrassed about who I was and I was embarrassed about what I was going through. So I essentially talked to maybe five people in my life and they didn't know and you know, they had not been exposed. I didn't have church, school, everything like that. I removed myself from society because I couldn't handle what I was going through.
0: So the So the impact of the self-isolation was that you had less access to people who might've been able to help you Um, in, you know, in a social setting, come up with a word for your disease, rather than um, rather than waiting for uh, a poorly educated medical, um, medical community to come up with the language for your disease.
2: Right, I I never had a huge community. And then, like I said, it just was too much. I could not Figure out how to share what I was going through with people around me, and I chose to isolate rather than to try to find a way to balance that.
0: So now you said that you were living in a tick endemic community. This will be my last uh, area of questions. <laughs> Matt is getting very anxious that he's uh, not able to ask you his questions yet. But um, do you believe that because you grew up in a tick endemic community, you were around ticks your entire life? You were you were you were living in a rural place where you were riding horses and coming in contact with a lot of animals that would have had ticks on them. Uh, Do you believe that you were bitten by ticks during most of your life and that the time that you had gotten sick was a reinfection coupled with a gal who was like burning the candle at both ends and probably immunocompromised because of all of the, you know, the, the active things that you were doing? Or do you believe that the tick bite that you had received or the tick bites that you received just before you gotten sick was your, um, was your, uh, was the moment when the, um, multi-germ infection that got spit into you caused you to get sick? Uh,
2: I, can, I can do the big reveal and answer that question now. Um, <laughs> so essentially, um, I found out, this is many years later, that I have a very, very severe liver condition and that I have always had since childhood. So I mentioned that like I get dizzy in the summer and things like that. So apparently my whole life, I had a liver condition that doctors missed and you know all that good stuff. I believe that when I got bitten by the seed ticks in my 20s, that it just activated all of those things. So I believe that people are able to deal with their symptoms because they have organs that are working and going. Well, my liver was not working and it was not going. So all those symptoms were actually liver symptoms. And that's why they were not early diagnosis of fine, because they were actually all this other stuff. So and that's why I went down super hard, like having a compromised liver. So it is definitely possible that I have Lyme, but the liver condition and the underlying other thing that doctors have never caught my whole life was the, uh, the pivot point.
1: Lauren, is there a name for the liver condition that you have?
2: Yep, I have hepatitis B.
1: Okay, so this hepatitis B caused you to have a compromised liver, which made you susceptible to get extremely sick when you contracted Lyme disease, you believe, correct? Correct. Okay, so I just wanna put things in perspective and zoom out, because you and Richard were really deep in the conversation there. You what you were really sick about the time you were 26 years old, and it took you about two years to find your doctor in DC because you freaked out on that nurse at the functional doctor. <laughs> so we're talking about 28 when you got diagnosed. Am I am I correct in the time frame here?
2: Yeah, probably around 28 or so. Yeah.
1: Well, okay.
2: It's a little gray, right? <laughs> yeah, it's uh,
1: approximately. Now in DC, was is this the famous doctor that we all know from DC that you were referred to?
2: It is the famous man. <laughs>
1: okay. So, you know, look, Dr. Jemsek has helped a lot of people, but every doctor has their limitations, right? Every doctor has people that can't help. So it seems like you were one of the outliers that like he was not able to help, but he did get you your diagnosis and he did bring you into the community and he did help you then form, well, I should say he helped you. He was a trigger for your formation of Lyme warriors, right? So how long did you treat with Dr. Jemsek before you realize this isn't working? I need to
2: do something else. Yeah. So I, I have a huge respect for Dr. Jemsek, even though he was not the solution for me. Obviously, he's a pioneer. He's someone who's stepping out willing to get their neck cut again and again and not give up. Uh, you know, So I have this huge respect for him. I spent a year and a half in his clinic with his PAs, um, and I did the oral antibiotic combination protocols. And at a year and a half, they diagnosed me to either go to maintenance or opt for IVs. And I said, neither. Like, I, I don't feel comfortable going in IVs. I don't like throwing good money after bad kind of mentality. If what you had already done didn't work and I'm not better, I'm not ready for a maintenance protocol. So I was kind of back in this no man's land. I have Lyme disease, but the leading expert couldn't help me. What do I do now? So there, there was this kind of heartbreak point that you're, you're idle, The man who leads the champions well, am I a Lyme warrior anymore? Like, is this my thing or, is this another bad diagnosis that I just spent a year and a half on?
1: So you doubted yourself because you were with the leading Lyme doctor and he couldn't help you. And you felt like, wow, maybe something else, because I've had a lot of other misdiagnoses, right? I
2: I was so scared that Lyme was, you know, like everybody says, it's not a real thing. Well, what if I just got scammed for a year and a half to go through all this? And it isn't a real thing. It was, it was a very scary time.
1: And I find it interesting that they called it the a maintenance protocol, because you were still sick and really didn't get much better. So why would they refer to it as a maintenance protocol when you're telling them? I mean, I'm assuming you're telling them, right? So you're telling Dr. Jemsek staff, hey, I'm still sick after a year and a half of treating with you. And, and their response is, oh, let's put you on a maintenance plan. Like that makes no sense to me, right?
2: They essentially gave me two paths. They said, go IV or go down to maintenance and look for something else. And I'll say this was a PA that I don't believe is there anymore, you know, but Uh, Again, I felt that was when I fell out of the box again. Well, I didn't fit in your toolkit. What do I do now? And there wasn't any backup plans because I didn't fit in their path anymore.
1: And I think this all boils down to the fact that there's never a one-size-fits-all solution for Lyme. And you were boxed into a imaginary one-size-fits-all solution, which is oral antibiotics. I'm sorry, oral antibiotics. And if that doesn't work, we're going to do IV antibiotics. And you're like, wait a second. This doesn't feel right. A year and a half in, I'm not better. I'm hitting the pause button here and I need to reassess. So at this point though, Lauren, you're doubting whether or not you really have Lyme disease. So walk us through what happens next. Are you exploring other potential root causes thinking maybe it's not Lyme? Are you looking for another Lyme specialist? What do you do now?
2: Yep. So I, I turn to the almighty Facebook communities where everybody with Lyme is and where nobody knows what's going on. It's the blind leading the blind in a uh, very passionate, but not always helpful way. Um, so... I jump into these communities and I start looking for another Lyme literate doctor that takes an alternative that's non-antibiotic because we all know there's like 10 other billion paths and which one is the right one for me. I'm researching uh, hypothermia, going to Germany, stem cells, all this stuff. Well, I also don't have the budget for any of this. So what the heck is someone supposed to do? Um, Long story short, again, I am screaming from the rooftops. Somebody tell me how you got better without antibiotics. Somebody give me a different path that doesn't mean flying to Germany. Um and so I ended up with a couple different options and I can kind of split down whichever path you want to go to. I uh visited a Lime Letter doctor who specialized in ozone and uh, IV infusions for minerals and nutrition. And oh, can we can, in-
1: we can we go one by one here and just I want yeah. to explore each of them? So I'm, I'm sorry to slow you down, but so the no, first no, no, thing okay. you did. Okay, we'll is, go with him. <laughs> okay. So the first thing you did was go to get IV infusions. Is that what you said?
2: So I went to him. I was mostly interested in the ozone. I was not really interested in the infusions. I, I just I'm not a big needle person. I because I react so poorly to things, heavy doses are very uh, scary to me. so I always like to do things small first. So I went to him and um, he told me that I needed to go on a low dose of steroids along with ozone at the same time. And I had told him I had been on steroids before and I was really really opposed to it. People with Lyme are not supposed to be on steroids. I was really not interested in. It. And he said, trust me, my wife has Lyme, you're gonna be okay. Three days into it, I couldn't walk again. I was flat peeled to the floor, could not function like, and just, uh, so I was in a different state because he was out of state. I was with friends, with family trying to make it work. And I am laying on the floor of a dining room, bawling because I had fallen down so far. And I crawl into his office, like laying in the floorboards of my mother's car. I'm like, the steroids are not working. Undo them. What's, what's the undo button. And he says, I don't know. This always works for people. I don't know what to do for you.
1: So again, so, you're an outlier, you're fitting out the the again.
2: again, like, so I went but, alternative and it doesn't work for me either. And now he doesn't know what to do with me. What am I supposed to do? You know,
1: <laughs> was this blood ozone? So I know there's a lot of options to administer ozone for Lyme. So this is blood ozone. You were receiving yep, correct? direct
2: injection, IV ozone. I only had one dose. I do think it, I do think ozone has a lot of merit, but the steroids that he put me on first, just, that was the the straw that broke the camel's back. <laughs>
1: And he claimed he had a lot of success stories with other chronic Lyme patients using steroids and IV ozone, blood ozone.
2: Correct. It's a very low dose. It's supposed to be under five milligrams. It's supposed to stimulate the immune system. I have heard it repeated through the Lyme community. And every time I tell people don't do it, like, you know, steroids are not a friend of Lyme and people believe it or don't believe it. But, you know, I always just have to share that it it was kind of the unraveling for me. <laughs>
1: well, and, Lauren, thank you for sharing this because I wish I had that message that you're sharing with our listeners several years ago. Well, more than several years ago, I was on, I was on steroids for quite a while and told that that would help me. And it, the damage it did took me years to recover from the yep. steroids. So I think, again, everybody may be different, but the two of us have shared that same experience. And I think generally speaking, steroids are something we should be cautious of in the Lyme community because they can do a lot more damage than good in many cases like yours and mine, right? So (laughs) walk us through, you're out of state. Thank God you have family with you. You're in your mom's car going back to this doctor and he's telling you, I don't know what to do. I mean, what now?
2: Yeah, so the kind of the sideline story that's run along here is also when I'm screaming in the line group, somebody help me, somebody help me. Um, This woman comes out, she says, you know, I got better with herbals, have you tried them? And I said, no, nobody's opened that option to me. She says, well, call this herbalist, middle of nowhere, nobody. Um, and give her a call. And I had been kind of working with her on some very low level stabilizing supplements. Uh, I was more focused on the ozone. I thought that was gonna be the big break because I'd heard a lot more about it. So I was consulting with this herbalist um, and she seemed okay. She seemed to get me, but I was really looking to knock it out. I was done with Lyme. I needed a big deal and herbals had not occurred to me. Again, I was very Western. I did not believe in those things back then. So just, she is... You know, the, the angel on earth kind of human being, because when I walked out of that doctor's office and I was basically on the floor, like crawling my way out of it, I called her um, on her cell phone from the car ride trying to get back to where we lived. Um, and I said, I don't know what's happening to me. My doctor won't help me. She said, do you remember that supplement that I gave you a couple weeks ago? Take two of those. And I could stand up again.
1: What was a In, supplement, Lauren? Do you recall? It's,
2: yep, it's hypothalamus. It is a glandular supplement for the brain. And I was able to sit back up and I was able to do a six hour car ride home because of two supplements that she had suggested I take and I I never looked anywhere else again. Like that was the moment I wasn't sure I was going to live through because of how bad I felt and one small stupid supplement could get me back to functioning again. And I completely went over to being entirely in her care. She had recommended I not do antibiotics previously because it was causing issues. I deep dove into her, we did blood work and basically she helped me get my life back. And she's the reason I have been able to do anything.
1: So we quickly geek out over the fact that you were pretty much crippled by the steroids and then two supplements of hypothalamus basically got you back in your feet? I mean, that's really powerful, right? So you said that it's a, it's a, a glandular supplement for your brain. So what does it do? What do you think it did that allowed you to rebound so quickly from two, just two capsules or two supplements of this hypothalamus?
2: Yep. So basically this is a gland in your brain that balances everything your endocrine system, your, you know, everything. So all these like problems that I've been having, the shakiness, the glandulars, like all this stuff, it all came from the hypothalamus in the brain, which is a very normal point for Lyme to attack and bacteria to live. So just to be able to support this supplement in my brain gave me enough to just function. Like, you know, and we say function Lyme patients, slightly above just completely disabled, but it gave me the ability to get my brain back and to stop being a sobbing mess on the floor and to get back into functioning again. And, you know, so I kept taking the supplement and it kept helping my brain. And then I worked through herbals to eradicate the bacteria from that part of my brain. And I just kept getting better as I removed the bacteria from my brain.
1: That's an amazing story right there. So tell us, so at this point you're basically like, I'm in your hands now, right? Because now somebody finally was able to help you after being failed by so many people. So what was the protocol moving forward? You said you were on a sort of a maintenance kind of thing with her, you really didn't, you weren't buying herbs too much, but then you had this failed experience with ozone and the steroids and now you're in her care, this herbalist. What is she giving you now to help eradicate the bacteria from your body? You know, do you recall what herbs or what kind of protocol you were on to help now treat your chronic Lyme disease?
2: Yep. So she is, uh, she's almost, she's so much more than a Lyme doctor. So initially she says, we got to stabilize you. You are so fragile and you are so fried in so many ways. So I was taking a lot of glandular support for the brain, um, you know, adrenal support for my whole adrenal system that had been fried, you know, and all these different things. And she said, you know, we're going to start you off. She does an adaptive burner protocol. And so we're taking burner mixes and I'm so reactive. What does One that mean, I'm
1: sorry to interrupt again, but what does that yeah. mean? You hit an adaptive burner protocol? Is that what you said? So
2: essentially burner herbs, but she would throw in a couple other things that she liked. And I will tell you, I don't know what they are. When <laughs> you say know. burner
1: herbs, are you, uh- are the, are they a type of herbs? You mean are you saying Buner herbs? I'm sorry. So I don't know what those are.
2: Buner. Yeah. So I, was uh, okay, the I call them
1: Buner. That's why I'm confused. Yeah, like so tephan, Stephen Buner, yeah, the yeah, herbalist yeah. Stephen Buner, his protocol yeah. for Lyme disease. You were using yeah. a lot of his herbs for his protocol. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I'm then, sorry. So it's
2: a slightly revisited version of that. And again, I, I couldn't tell you what was in it, right? I at this point, you just take what this woman who fixes things gives you. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm taking it and um I'm, I'm actually splitting drops. So I'll put one drop of it in a glass of water and split it and drink half of it. And I'm reacting like every single time. And she's like, what is wrong with you? But the biggest thing is she's like, no, no, this tells us something as opposed to every other doctor's like panic, panic. We don't know what to do. She's like, no, something else is wrong with you. Like other people with good, healthy, otherwise systems are able to detox Lyme and deal with this. You should be at five drops, 10 drops to start. Um, and that's when we went down this road of, okay, what other things are going wrong? And she is just the, the most brilliant person that she walked me through it. And she kept going, I think it's your liver. I'm not sure. Let's run some tests. And she went and bought, you know, got me um, hooked up with a doctor who ran a standardized hepatitis B Western medicine panel along with other things. And that's where I came back off the charts for severe liver conditions despite my liver being tested by GEMSEC, by every other doctor, never tested for hepatitis B.
1: I can't tell you how much I love the fact that this doctor said to you, instead of saying, I don't know how to help you, like the person who gave you the steroids and you're coming to basically completely debilitated, sorry, I don't know what to do with you. And now you're you're walking away in panic and fear and anxiety. You're reacting to one drop when many people can handle 10 drops right after that. And she says, well, this is a clue. We're going to figure this out that's a much better way to react to a patient than saying, sorry, I don't know, right? Because you you did figure it out. And then the fact that she dug deep with you and got you this this liver diagnosis of hep B had to be groundbreaking for you. So walk us us through about how you felt, right? Because now you have Lyme disease, you have hep B, and you're realizing together it introduces a whole new complication for treating your Lyme, right?
2: Right, well, and so hep B is a very, not a pretty diagnosis, right? Like Lyme disease, you get a tick. Well, so happy is very associated with like sexual contact and needles and stuff like that. I got it as a child and there is no like dark history or past or something terrible. I don't know what happened. Was it a contaminated needle with a standard uh, immunization? What happened? I don't know, but the test does show that it is chronic. It is over a decade old. So something in my childhood happened. And what is that? So it's very hard to come forward with like this hep B diagnosis because it's not what do people think then? And now I'm not a Lyme warrior. I'm a hep B patient. Well, that's, it's nothing like the Lyme community. There is not really a lot of support and similar. There's not a lot of options for it. So instead of jumping back into the Western medicine world, I just said, well, you know, you, you've gotten me here. You're going to help me fix it. So I stayed fully entrenched in alternative medicine and herbals. And I went down this alternative path. Um, and it, it was really hard. So my liver was in a really, really bad place. And then there's all these people questioning me, well, if you have B, you should be on the pharmaceuticals for it. And I just went, I'm not going back. It's been so bad the whole way through. I'm not leaving this woman for anything. And if she can't fix me like, oh, well, <laughs> at least I'm in a better spot. So, you know, it, it turned into, I had to balance the line because the line was a problem. I had to try to address the liver. Liver in women also will lead to uh, hormonal imbalances and severe estrogen issues, which is also all the other things the doctor couldn't catch. So all of a sudden I had all these diseases. Oh, and I got into some mold and I had some mold symptoms too. And it just became truly overwhelming that I didn't have a single identity anymore. I was not a Lyme warrior. I was just a mixed mutt of diseases. And that was just really kind of overwhelming. And I was just so thankful for her that she's like, we're gonna deal with it one drop at a time. Bad days, good days, and it's going to be a long road. And she was never shy about that, but she never left me. And she never gave up when I was an absolute handful of patient. I cannot tell you how many times I called her at 2 a.m. Because your liver dumps at 2 a.m. And I used to have these horrific symptoms at 2 o'clock in the morning. And she picked up the phone every single time and walked me through it, sometimes saying the same things over and over again. But she never gave up on me and she never let me get worse and just... Everybody should have a doctor like that, and everybody should have somebody like that in their corner. And she not only gave me stuff, she taught me how to handle it. Well, you're having this symptom. We know what this is because this reacted with this. And she taught me how to figure out how to heal myself rather than just let these things happen to me. And that's when just everything changed. I became in control of things.
1: But you were an active participant, Lauren, meaning you wanted to learn, you were researching, you were telling her exactly what was going on. You were explaining to her what was happening in your body, which allowed her to make informed decisions and guesses to lead you to where you were, where you had all of these diagnoses, which collectively is what was going on in your body, right? So you were a big part of this as well. So I don't want to lose sight of the fact that this isn't all your doctor, (laughs) this is a partnership, right? And I also want to counter something you said earlier when you said, I'm no longer a Lyme warrior because I have hep B and I have mold and maybe some other things going on. But you know, Rich and I have learned, and we've we kind of have changed our opinion over the last year. A Lyme warrior and even chronic Lyme in general doesn't just mean I have Lyme disease. It means I have a chronic systemic problem in my body and I'm chronically ill. Is it Lyme disease, Babesia, Bartonella, or Lichia, Anaplasma? Is it mold? Is it HEP B? Is it heavy metals? Is it parasites? It's all of the above, right? So like that right. soup <laughs> of bacteria, that soup of pathogen refer to, we call chronic Lyme. So I think that that actually solidified your title as a Lime Warrior and your group Lime Warriors, because it's never just Borrelia burgdorferi that gets people sick, chronically sick the way you were, right? You needed to get more information to figure out what was going on to identify how to help you and get yourself better, right? I mean, looking back, you see it that way now?
2: I, I do. And, you know, I do definitely still self-identify as a lime word, but it was just at that time of so many things were coming my way. And I do have um, Bartonella as well, which is a very large player. Uh, you know, the lime wasn't as bad as definitely the Bartonella. So, you know, it definitely, it just kind of shook you again. Like you get so set in, this is what I am and you stop looking for other things. It's very jarring to have to think about other things. And then when it's more than three things, you're like, well, let me just throw up my hands. This is just a whole cluster of nonsense. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and just having somebody that stays steady with you and helps walk you through identifying, well, so the tremors and the weakness were very Lyme symptoms, but the neurological is, you know, or liver, you know, they help you define which is which so that when those symptoms occur, you are in control and you can deal with them. And that to me is the most invaluable part.
1: Well, I think you're sharing a really powerful tip that we don't speak about enough on this podcast because we always focus on Lyme, right? And that tip is if you have a diagnosis of Lyme disease and you're treating and you're not getting better, or you're not getting the results you expect with your doctor, or you're uber sensitive like you were, you have to keep looking. Yes, you have Lyme disease, but you probably have something else. And you're missing a piece of the puzzle to identify what you need to get better and we don't talk about that enough on this podcast so thank you for really diving deep with us to explore that because Yes, Lyme is real. Yes, you are a Lyme warrior. You are a Lyme warrior, but you need to know what else is going on so you can get yourself better, right? And I just, I just want to stop and, and reflect on that for a second. So, you know, really it's the whole pot boiling over effect that Dr. Rolls talks about where you have the soup of stuff going on in your body. And once, it, once the pot boils over, man, you're chronically sick, right? And that's kind of yeah. where you are and where all of we are as a community, as a Lyme warrior community that you've now built, right? So I do want to explore a little bit more because you said you had Bartonella as well. So when we hear about these things, you know, we know that if you're going the Western route, doxycycline can help with Bartonella too. But even in that world, there are more specific antibiotics that work towards Bartonella better than maybe doxycycline for certain people. And in the natural world, once you realize you had Bartonella, did you have to add in additional herbs to address the Bartonella or maybe change things up? And how did you know you had Bartonella? Was this from the hygienics testing with with this herbalist?
2: Uh, no, so, uh, Igenix testing back with GEMSEC, he suspected Bartonella and I was put on rifamiopin for over six months at one period. And those symptoms did improve. I think a lot of people know with Bartonella, it comes back and it comes back with a vengeance. And that's why it's harder to deal with in Lyme. So when I got to the herbalist and she suggested Bartonella, I was like, no, no, I knocked it out. I had so many of those symptoms disappear and I was good for a while. And then all of a sudden they come back. Um, and I was not willing to do the ripamyopin again because it was so intense and it was brutal. And everybody's like, "Well, you're herxing, that's good." I didn't want to do that. I went down Buner, you know, Buner herbs again, and I found that I was able to manage the symptoms, herxing, and all that stuff so much better. And I was able to maintain it longer, so that it wasn't that I treated for a second and then waited for it to come back. I could actively continue to treat it, and I wouldn't have these flare-ups and these returns. So I really struggled with Bartonelle coming back and back again, up until I was able to maintain an herbal protocol that just really, it didn't give up for a little bit. You know, you could keep taking it indefinitely.
1: (laughs) Lord, I love what you're saying because Allie Hilfiger described this so well when we interviewed her. She talked about how she was, I mean, for years, I think almost a decade, she was on this antibiotic loop. She was treating with Western medicine. She'd make some progress go back and start a business, be uber successful, and then crash again. And this happened, I think seven or eight times with Hill Hilfiger, until she finally realized, I have to get off this merry-go-round. This is a cycle. What am I gonna do? And then she pivoted to natural medicine as well. And once she did that, she now has sustained remission. She's been able to you know, keep her health in good shape. So I think that's a really important lesson that you learned, and that I think many others have shared as well, that yes, when you're treated with GEMSEC, you had some relief, but it came back with a vengeance. But now using the Buter Protocol and natural medicine and herbs, you've been able to keep it at bay and not have it come back with a vengeance like it did with Western medicine with GEMSEC, correct?
2: Absolutely. And so I'm I'm super alternative now. Like I'm sure you've heard of like liver flushing and cleansing the liver with my liver condition. I do so much of it. Well, so you're also like awaking dormant things and you've been storing and like all these different like hormonal issues and metals that you don't remember ever being in. And so you're going to get a lot of like flares and reoccurring things by trying to cleanse other systems. Some people have it in their lymphatic system. Some people have spleen issues. And so also when you're trying to take a whole natural approach to it and you're cleansing these things, well, you're going to awaken old infections. You're going to awaken cysts and all this stuff. And that's why I think that these antibiotics are temporary solutions, but what do you do when you want to get to another layer of cleansing You have to have something that isn't going to destroy your gut bacteria every single time. And that's why I just think antibiotics are a solution for some people, maybe a more in acute form. But if you are a heavily chronic patient, like I am, that it is deep in you and every part of you and all your organs are compromised by something else. Anyway, I just believe in this very like total overall healing and this process that it's not a smooth road and there are bumps, but if you have the understanding and somebody to guide you through all those different bumps and what they're gonna look like, that's the best place you could possibly be.
1: And I think it can be scary as you're starting to have some of these older symptoms come back or new symptoms come in as you're addressing these specific systems. Like you mentioned when you addressed your liver and you did a liver cleanse, right? So, and you know, a, a previous guest had called that retracing. And I think it's a really powerful term because as you're getting deep and you're bringing these deep rooted pathogens or, or toxins like heavy metals or parasites out, you're going to have symptoms that are new and even symptoms that you thought you got over because it's bringing it out from deep within your body and they're temporary because you're getting to the root and you don't get that with the Western medicine, at least from my experience and clearly from your experience, right? So that retracing, if you're working with a practitioner who understands that is going to give you some peace about it and you're really getting to a better place with a holistic healing model on your body, right? But I do wanna ask you about the liver more because we know the liver is so important for detoxing. We know that your liver produces bile that isn't necessary to bring toxins from your blood and all other parts of your body, including your brain from your liver into your GI tract to ultimately get it out of your body. And if your liver was compromised because of Hep B, you did a ton of stuff to do liver cleansing. So what, you know, one of the things we've learned about is milk thistle is an amazing herb that actually helps regenerate liver cells. And we learned that recently. So what were you doing now to to counter the Hep B and do your liver cleanses and also strengthen your liver so you can hit that and also hit the Lyme disease on the other side?
2: Yep. So I I had a uh, bottle of herbs that I have no idea what was in it. Just you know she she knows the things that I don't know. And yes, milk thistle was one of them. But also like uh, chunka piedra is a big one that helped. But was like- it? I'm yeah. sorry.
1: Did you say chunky perega? I don't.
2: Chunka C H A N C A and P I E R D E-R-A, Chanka Piedra, Thank you. it's an herb and it breaks up stones in the liver that calcify and become solid so that when you do liver flush, you're able to remove it because I was doing these liver flushes and oh my God, would I be in pain? There's these big calcified stones and they will not flush out of the ducts of your liver. So I was in extreme amounts of pain. Well, so Gemsec would have rushed me off to have my gallbladder removed because that's a very standard practice. And she says, no, you need your gallbladder. That's where the bacterial reserves are. This helps you with bile to help continue to cleanse the liver. You need this, like stick with it. And there will be times I called her up and I'm like, I don't wanna stick with it anymore. This is just the dumbest thing I've ever done. Like this is, you know, worse than the other things.' And she's like, no, it's gonna get better and it's gonna be there. And, you know, I, I probably have been liver fleshing for about three years, very intensely, probably more intensely than most people recommend. But I will tell you every time my life gets a little bit better and a little bit better. and So it's just continuing to take all these mixes of herbs, keep supporting the liver. Don't overload it by taking lots of, you know, lime kill formula, because that's hard on the liver and Bartonella treatment is very, very hard on the liver. You're also like pushing out, uh, women will push out uh, toxic estrogen. So I'm having hormonal issues and like metapausal symptoms and all this stuff. And it's just, Lord, can we stop there? I'm vanity. sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to
1: interrupt you again. So this is something we hear a lot about, and we don't talk about enough on this podcast either. And I think this is something the first time we're really even talking about this one in general. What does that mean? Can you just re- restate what you just said and give us a little more detail about, about estrogen and, and menopausal symptoms? I mean, look, you, people can't see you, but you're very young, right? So when you're saying you <laughs> are right, right. having menopause, I'm like, wait a second, that's not normal. Tell us more. Like, that doesn't seem right, you know? So can right. you give us some detail there.
2: <laughs> yeah. So uh, like 29 to, 29 to early 30s, uh, just having all of these hormonal symptoms. Um, estrogen can do a whole lot of weird things and i'm sure if anybody looks into uh, estrogen dominance men it pushes out testosterone pushes out normal functions well for women it does all these other things too and it's very limiting so it can be neurological conditions it can be your stomach isn't digesting right because estrogen is blocking all these things with when it's too excessive so i one am trying to remove the estrogen from my blood and active like parts of my body. And then I'm pushing more out for my liver my body is just so full of estrogen that it almost can't function. So you just have to be able to keep cleansing while cleansing the liver. And it's just constant removal and estrogen is very hard on the digestive system. So you're taking all these probiotics and stuff, but your stomach is never coming in balance. You're having SIBO and overgrowth because of estrogen. So it's great that we can talk about taking probiotics, but that didn't work for me because I had so much dang estrogen that it couldn't win in the battle you just, you got to have somebody who understands what is causing everything that's behind this. So we say my stomach hurts. Well, why is your stomach hurting? What is causing that cascade? And you just got to unpack every single organ and give each of them like time to breathe and rejuvenate. And how are we supposed to figure out what is causing every one of those? And that's why I totally understand why people get overwhelmed. And it's great to have a guide going through that.
1: I mean, I'm loving geeking out about all of this with you. And I want to go a little bit deeper on this topic. So you mentioned that estrogen can cause GI distress. And we know if people are treating with antibiotics, that causes severe gut health problems as well. So if there are females listening to this podcast and they are, they are having issues with antibiotics, you're saying estrogen can be compounding problems that antibiotics are producing for GI health and causing some complications. Is that correct?
2: Right. So it's actually the estrogen is blocking normal functions because it's out of balance. Your liver is responsible for bile. So your stomach is also not moving bile through and you're not able to eliminate waste. Basically, the whole system is starting to shut down. And if you can't remove toxins, how the heck are you gonna kill lime and remove it from the body? So- Well, I think you can kill women, the lime, but you can't yeah. get rid
1: of the, the die off, right? So now you're toxic, right?
2: Exactly. I see a lot of women, they go and they start on an herbal protocol, which is amazing, but then they're so sick and they're like, oh, I'm perksing. No, 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 you're just so toxic. Your body cannot physically remove like all the things that are going on inside you. And that's not even from like, you know, the toxins in your stomach, the toxins in your liver, the estrogen, are you dumping metals? Do you have parasites in you? Like, you got to go back, make sure all your organs are flowing, making sure everything is communicating. Do you have lymph buildup? Do you have lymph nodes, the size of rocks that's telling you, you have stuff in your lymphatic system, like listen to your body and wherever it's starting to bunch up, you have to be able to allow those pathways to open, or you're going to have a really hard time with any kind of treatment.
1: So with the estrogen, for you, it seems like it was your liver and Lyme both causing excess estrogen being produced, which is being causing, causing a problem. So for our listeners that don't have liver issues, or don't think they have liver issues, (laughs) can Lyme on its own cause excess estrogen causing problems and preventing them from ultimately healing?
2: Yes. And I see this in both men and women, that the liver does become compromised. Um, You know, so I always, and, and GemSec does this to his credit. He does suggest that you always support the liver through treatment methods because he understands that's a waste elimination system. So I think that anybody who's on a protocol should be doing some type of liver support. Like you said, milk thistle, stuff like that is really great. Women do 10 times the amount of it because the estrogen just knocks everything up. Um, you know, and, a lot of Lyme letter doctors will measure men for excessive estrogen, but it's not as measured in women because we're just expected to have estrogen. Well, we also now have our, off the charts estrogen in women because it's in our foods, it's in our products we use in our body, and so on and so forth. But so I, I do encourage everybody who has Lyme in any form is to pay attention to the liver and allow it to do its job.
1: <laughs> so Lauren, talk to us about parasites because you mentioned it earlier on with Rich, and you brought it up again. Were parasites a problem in your journey, and did you have to address them with your the herbalist?
2: You know, so everything is a little bit right. Like mold was pretty omnipresent for me just because I got into a moldy house on my journey and I had to address that. Um, parasites, I've taken some on and off things. I wouldn't say I have like a massive parasite issue, but everybody has some sort of level. It's good to do some type of parasite cleansing. And that was herbal. Uh, so
1: it was all herbal parasite cleansing with your herbalist?
2: I, I, I'm in the herbal boat from here on out. Just everything is herbal for me.
1: Do, do you know um, what herbs were used for the parasites? Do you recall? Or is it just a tincture that you got and you just trusted and took?
2: Yeah, it, I and that's why this sounds like if you heard how neurotic I was in the beginning that I wasn't taking pharma and I wouldn't take anything and I wanted to do it and I researched him to death. Um GemSec had a specific antibiotic. I told him he could shove it. I wasn't taking that one with the cyproflaxin. I was a very combative patient and I got to somebody who I trusted and I took everything. I didn't ask questions because yeah. she I trusted her. So from this point there was a lot of mixes, um, definitely with parasites, you have Walnuts and pumpkin seeds and, you know, artemisans and things like that. There's so many natural, even foods that you can eat to address those. So I just parasites are kind of an ongoing battle since we all have them. And what part of the world do you live in? What are you more susceptible to? So I do think that's kind of demographically something to look into, but I do think there are so many foods that heal conditions. So in my uh, refrigerator, you will find broccoli. All the time because broccoli reduces estrogen and I will eat broccoli multiple meals a day and I will have just all of a sudden I can't think and my vision is blurred and I will eat broccoli and I will feel better because estrogen released in my body broccoli was able to combat it and I can move on food can heal us if we just know what the right food is. Right.
1: <laughs> That's so I, I, I never knew that broccoli will reduce estrogen and can be helpful for, you know, for probably men and women in the communities. Yes. I, I, Rich knows I've been on this fruit and veggie kick and I've been eating so much broccoli and I have just been feeling so much better in general. And I'm like, you're saying, you're saying like, I need more broccoli. And look, I'm a man, right? So.
2: <laughs> yeah, No, but it, cruciferous vegetables are have natural dim levels that help the body detox, excess estrogen and balance normal hormonal levels. So like our parents eat your veggies, we really should have been doing that, <laughs> you know, because um, when I got sick, I didn't eat a lot of clean foods, I was so miserable, I just ate whatever was at my fingertips. And now again, this alternative healing that foods heal us and provide solutions. It's it's a thing. <laughs> so,
1: so Lauren, with the, with the broccoli and the vegetables, cause you know, sometimes we, I hear if you overcook vegetables, it can remove the nutrients or the, or the beneficial value to the body. Do you, are you eating raw broccoli or cooked broccoli, but just not overcooked broccoli? Like, What kind of broccoli are you eating to help with your estrogen?
2: Uh, all forms, all shapes, all sizes. If I'm really sick, I will grab broccoli out of the fridge and gnaw on it, like with no prep. Uh, and I will also preface this that I hate broccoli. So like it's like this personal, like vendetta moment, but I get better like immediately because it's able to cleanse me. So I also incorporate it in my cooking when it's not something I immediately need. Like it's just a food that has become very omnipresent. And you know, my spouse, if I start getting grumpy, he will make me a meal with broccoli cooked into it. He's like, You seem to be having some issues today, eat some of this. You know,
1: <laughs> so. so backing up to the mold, it sounds like you previously lived in a house that had mold in it, and you since either remediated or moved out of that moldy environment. What were you doing to address the mold with the herbalist? I'm, I'm imagining you were doing some binders probably to help pull the mycotoxins out of your body. Were you doing anything else? Can you give us some more detail there with the mold?
2: Yeah. Uh, so I moved into my parents' house when I got really sick to be taken care of by my parents um, and their house was full of mold. So ran away to get better and ended up in a very moldy house. Um, and I, I did move away from that house and, you know, the parents have since remediated and improved it, but um binders are a great start but mold is kind of like everything it needs its own addressing formula so i do like shoemaker protocol and i do like these above and beyond i it really drives me crazy when people say well i had mold and i took charcoal or corella for it well to me that's like a 10 percent solution you need more you need to hit the mycotoxins and get them out so i do always recommend shoemaker and protocols like that in addition to it Uh, again i had a a bottle of mixes that I couldn't tell you what was in it, but I, I tell you, I feel better. <laughs> so
1: Lauren, give us a little more detail on that though, because I, I, we're familiar with the Shoemaker Protocol for mold, you know, mold illness and mold toxicity. And we're also familiar with binders, like you said, activated charcoal and chlorella, removing not just mold toxins, but also things like heavy metals out of your body but you said it's only 10%. Can you give us any examples of, of the other 90% that could be helpful in eliminating mold? Like what, what type of things did you do besides binders that helped you feel better when you, when you were in this moldy environment?
2: Well, this is where people get mad at me because all I, I had one tincture. I don't know what was in that tincture, but it was called my mold formula and I took it and I felt better and I don't know what was in it. Um, I do know there's some PAUDARCO, it's P-A-U-D-A-R-C-O, I think is it. It's an antifungal. So that was one thing that I took, but it wasn't fully getting it. It was a good piece because like mold and fungal are so tied together. Right. Um, so I, I wish I could give you an exact list of all the different herbs in it, but it was just, again, these mixes of these herbs that are alternative medicine and things we don't in their foods. Like these are bark from trees outside and they have the ability to get us better.
1: <laughs> well, this is a really good point to give your herbalist a shout out, right? I mean, are you comfortable sharing the name of your herbalist? Cause people listening are probably going to want to reach out and maybe, maybe treat with your, your, your herbalist if possible, or is this something that you're not comfortable sharing for obvious reasons? And we understand if, if not,
2: I, I won't share her name, but uh, if somebody goes to the Lime warrior website and looks at treatment options, there are resources to connect you to the right people there. So, okay. So, or
1: they can, can they send a DM to the Lime warrior account? if, if yeah, they, uh, okay. So not
2: always DM me personally, and I'm happy to share anything and everything on a personal one-on-one.
1: Okay. Lauren, what is your Instagram handle? Cause I don't know that we even know that.
2: Yep. So I am at chasing Napoleon, and people can see what I am into all the time. And I share lots of cute animal pictures. So <laughs> awesome! Well, we
1: are certainly going to start following you. So now, I mean, you've done so much to heal, right? Is there anything else that we've missed? I mean, we talked about so much. Is there anything else that we that we've missed that you've done with the herbals? Any other things that we you know that we've missed um, that you had conditions, treatments, experiences, etc.?
2: So I'll I'll do a brief aside and. Uh, at the end of the day, everything I did that got me significantly better was herbals. And this woman is the reason I live, the reason I function, the reason I've achieved anything in my life so far as a supplement to try to take the burden off of my body. I have tried uh, PMF and infrared mats and lots of other alternative healing. I think they're wonderful tools to supplement with, um, Rife machines as well. So because I'm so sensitive, I always struggled with how intense they are. Like Rife is a powerful machine and it has lots of you and I just I couldn't handle it all the time so it wasn't I think it can get people better I think PMF can get people better I think um, infrared mats are a big one that a lot of people recommend but because the liver is very intolerant to heat I couldn't use it as frequently so there's all these supplemental things that you can do but just based on who you are and what you're going through they might not be the answer but people who have fairly healthy livers Oh, uh, they get on those infrared mats and they sweat and they feel so much better. And it's the most amazing detox. My, my spouse is one of those. He'll sit on it for an hour and just cook himself raw and he feels so good. And I think those are really important tools that how can we supplement the entire healing system, food, number one, herbals or extended foods. They're amazing, but we have all this other technology as well. On the Lime warrior website, you'll see a lot of lists of all those different things. I don't think you need to go get every single one, but you know, try them out, find people who have them. And if you find one that really resonates, there's so many other things that you can do to get better.
1: (laughs) Lauren, you said something that made me think. So you said that your liver makes you heat intolerant. So you were so sensitive to these things, like an infrared mat, that it didn't work the best for you because of your personalized situation. So we've had a lot of people tell us heat and infrared and saunas oh my goodness they're the best thing in the world and other people tell us oh my goodness it put me into a huge flare i couldn't it got me so sick do you think the ones that are having issues with heat possibly have liver issues and the ones that are having success with these types of modalities have stronger livers that are more able to tolerate these things or do you think i'm incorrectly associating these two things together
2: I think they're close, but they're not perfect. Um, I do. I I have one friend who is just the outlier. Her liver is just, uh, you know, she and I give each other a run for our money on who has the worst liver, but she bakes. And it's the only thing that provides relief for her. And she's kind of my outlier because otherwise I'd say like 100% a, a heat intolerance is a relation to a liver, but there's one or two outliers. So that's why I'm like, try it, try it for five minutes. And if you feel worse, don't do it or do it in extreme moderation But also these are the people that are right. It's the answer. It makes them feel so much better because your skin is your biggest detox organ. So I, with everybody, I say, try it and try it short and sweet. Do not do an hour. Like that's how you get very sick, (laughs) but go in slow and slow.
1: So as you were supporting your liver with herbs, were you able to now increase the herbal protocols for Lyme and Bartonella and other things because your liver was getting stronger and your tolerance, to the other tinctures for the pathogens were getting higher.
2: Yep, uh I definitely have increased significantly. I am able to take herbals with a much better approach. I will still say I cannot attack them the way that uh, you know other people do. So the liver is kind of an ongoing battle. You're not going to undo a couple decades of liver damage in a couple years. You know, this is now an ongoing journey and that's a lot of people ask me, "Well, are you in remission from your herbalist?" Well, I don't really know. Like my liver is still this ongoing battle and I can't take the Lyme formulas as much as I want to, but I feel pretty good. And, you know, so I'm in this like kind of limbo. I'm getting better. I'm not in full remission. Is it my liver? Is it the Lyme? Is it the Bartonella? Is it mold? Is it something else I haven't discovered yet? And that's why I really hate when people say, well, I don't believe you unless you're in remission. Well, I can tell you that I used to not be able to stand up for years and I now run a farm and run around outside and do things, you know? And it's just those qualifiers. you got to just understand that healing is a process and it's not going to be done overnight. And if you have severe other conditions that are underlying, it is a journey. And that's frustrating because we all want to be better tomorrow. And I just think that's the most important takeaway is supporting the organs, giving your body like the grace and time that it's not a solution overnight. Organs don't turn back on once you take a supplement, you know, and that's tough for people.
1: So Lauren, before Rich picks up, I just want to share with you and our listeners that You personally have been an inspiration for me, Matt Sabatello, and for Tick Bootcamp with Rich as well. So your journey, we read up about you when we first started Tick Bootcamp. We were doing our research and we were so inspired by you, Lauren, and your Lime Warrior not-for-profit. And we modeled a lot of what we do off of Lime Warrior. So we just want to thank you for doing what you do because you've had a major impact on our personal lives and so many out there in the community. And I just want to make sure that I point that out before I hand it back over to Rich. And I do just want to ask you, because, I mean, look, I was, as you told us your Instagram, I'm sitting here looking at it on my phone and you're doing a lot out on the farm and you have a lot of cool <laughs> animals. You're doing a yeah. lot of cool things. So just <laughs> give us an idea of how much better you're doing today, considering you were bed bound, right? When you first got sick, you know, so g- give us an idea of like what you're doing and what your life is like today compared to where you were when you were totally debilitated.
2: Yeah. And, and this is where we're going to go dark for a minute, right? So I was living in my parents and I had Self isolated to a point where uh, essentially the only person I spoke to was an ex boyfriend who the relationship didn't work out with because I was sick, but it was the only person I could talk to. And my parents, I I love them, but I couldn't really like share with them. So I will fully admit that I was in a place where I said, if I can't find solutions in the next six months, I don't want to live anymore. And it's not because I didn't want to continue my life, it's because I was at a point where I saw no future in a way that I could continue to live. I essentially sat in a house and laid in a bed. Every day on end on end to only be broken up by doctors who made me cry hysterically at 30 years old. Like, you know, that's so embarrassing. And I didn't want to continue that life. And it wasn't because I didn't want to live, it's that I didn't want to live that life anymore. And I can say I didn't see any change in that path. And, you know, it's going to be a wild jump to I met the love of my life and he loved me when I was sick and he loved me when I couldn't do anything for myself and his support and an herbalist and somebody who cares. So I can't drive a car, I can't hold down a normal job. I now own three or four businesses. I have a new business every week. I do things that matter to me and I can create change in the world. And you know, uh, I now have a farm with all the farm animals that I love and things that I take care of. And my life is a whole different. It's definitely not the life I expected when I was in college. It's not the life that I could envision, but I am so happy. And I am so grateful for things that I never thought I could. And I still have symptoms. I still have illness, but I am so grateful to not be in the spot that I was anymore. And I think that vision is just so hard for people to understand that you can be happy and sick in a different way. It's just how, how sick are you and how limiting. And I can tell you that that can change. Don't give up. If every single doctor puts a door in your face, if every single doctor tells you that you're crazy, and even if a therapist tells you you're crazy. Nobody knows but you where that's coming from. And it's, uh, you know, it's up to you to navigate that and create the life you want after that. And it's not easy and it's so hard, but it's so worth it.
0: So Lauren, talk to us about how your Lyme disease journey helped you to build the new life that you have, how you discovered the new gifts that you weren't aware of that you possessed that have allowed you to now become the happy person that you are.
2: Yeah. So I, I started from what can I do? I knew a lot of what I couldn't do. I couldn't drive to a traditional job like I was doing. I couldn't do a lot of things. So I was limited to what can I do from a computer laying down? Because that's when I was really sick. I could only lay down and do it. And I sold t-shirts. Somebody shipped the t-shirts to me and I sold them and put them in a package. And that was all I could do. And that's how Lime Warrior started. And then just as I got better, well, what can I do now that is different? And that kind of is where Lime Warrior came from with people who are so sick and they don't know what to do and they've got 24 hours a day on their hands and they wanna make a difference. Well, let's write letters to our congressmen. Let's write letters to kids who need to be inspired. Let's create things. And anybody can do that, whether or not you can get up and run or do all those things. So Lime Warrior to me was really about what can you do from where you are. And as you get better, obviously that changes and becomes a little bit bigger every single day, but that's the whole purpose of Lime Warrior. Everybody on our team is either sick or a caregiver to somebody who's extremely sick. And we have no expectations and obligations because we know how you feel from one hour to the next is going to be different. And when you show up to our Zoom meetings for our volunteers, you're in your pajamas and your dog is barking in the background and your child is screaming. And that's our group because Lyme is awful and terrible. But if you want to show up and make a difference, we want space for that.
0: So Lauren, talk to us about how you got to that from that dark place where you were to the place where you... Gained appreciation for what you had and built on that, how that became the vehicle for you to get out of the grief cycle and ultimately creating something new.
2: So that's the toughest part, right? How do you retrain the brain into gratitude into from what we've been through? So I strongly believe that all patients are abused by medical system, by peers, you know, that from people who don't understand whether it's intentional or not, we all go through this traumatic response from people we're around. How can we be happy again from that? And I will tell you, I was not a happy person. I was a very mean patient. I was just, you know, you were over it. And so I I consciously focused that if I didn't want my life to continue down this path, I had to be a different person. So when I met people, I couldn't tell them exactly what I felt. And it was really tough. So when I met my spouse, it was kind of this ping pong game of I was a very bipolar person. I was trying to be a better person. I was so sick. And he was willing to stick with me and ride out that storm of changing and trying to retrain myself. So it was a consciousness of being supported by someone you love, which is not always an option for people. And just constantly being back at, I don't want to continue the life I had. I have to make a conscious decision to be different. And that's a battle every day, right? Every single day you wake up sick and you have to say, well, what am I going to do beyond being a sick person today? Or what am I going to do to empower it? And so I just think every single day making a choice of, where you want your life to go will lead you to that direction.
0: So um, Let's talk about um, your your meeting your spouse, right? Because one of the things that we often talk with people about in this community is finding the people who see the beauty in you when you can't see it yourself. What was it about him and you and the way you were relating to one another where he could see your gifts? He could see your superpowers when you couldn't see them yourself. And how important was it? for you and your journey to have somebody who could see your superpowers before you could.
2: You know, I, I wish I knew the answer to it. And I just pretty much just say he's just the best human on the entire face of the planet, right? I, I don't know how he tolerates the type A personality that is me. You know, it, it's clearly not any surprise that I'm a lot to deal with. And when I have strong opinions about things to doctors or authority that, you know, nothing's going to stop me. So just all different forms. And I think that's tough that when you're in a relationship, um, the one I was in previously, I was a, a cool person who did things and all of a sudden I wasn't that person anymore. And who I was with didn't accept that. That was not okay. And he understood I was sick, but it still didn't change the person he had to be in a relationship with. And of course it ultimately fell apart because I wasn't that person anymore. So with my spouse, he met well, me when I let's was Let's pause there for sick. a second. <laughs> yes. I,
0: do, I do want to interrupt you there because you know, you, you, You were in a relationship with someone who didn't see your superpowers, didn't see the real you, didn't see the beauty. It was somebody who just enjoyed the interaction with the person who he didn't really see their true essence. Isn't that really what what happened with the last relationship?
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, because when you're young and you're in a relationship for whatever, it's somebody to go to shows with and go to the bar with and do things like that. It's not really about who you are as a human being. And when you're putting challenges and you have to do those things, that's where you find does it work or doesn't it work? And wow, does chronic illness really speed up that thing? Well, wow, this doesn't work. And I, I think that's why we see marriages fall apart. That's why we see people who get sick in their middle life, your, your relationship is tested and not all relationships are made for chronic illness.
0: So let's talk about some of the other things that, um, that we haven't talked about yet and um, and let's talk about regenerative farming and why that is something that you now discovered through your Lyme journey. And that's an important piece of uh, of healing and why that's an important piece of healing, I guess, our entire society.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, so when I ended up back at my parents' house, my parents rural Virginia. So I mentioned early on, he grew up on a conventional cattle farm. So when I look out my window as a child, there are cows that walk by. And they're just cows. They're on land and they're raised and they're sold off. And i never thought anything of it. I did not have an interest in agriculture as a child. So I'm sitting at home and I'm so sick and I'm looking out the same window as my childhood, like almost 30 years later, and I'm seeing almost the same cows and almost the same thing. And I'm looking at the land and it looks like it hurts as much as I do. There's bare spots and it's raw and it looks terrible. And I all of a sudden started seeing the degradation of my childhood home around me. And it, you know, it just called out, well, I learned how to self heal. Like I learned that my body is capable of coming back when everybody didn't care. And I started getting this just overwhelming desire to heal where I grew up, um, which is a very weird transition, but I learned about, you know, so I started just looking at agriculture and learning a little bit. And I found regenerative agriculture, how we can heal our land and return topsoil and how it creates nutrient dense foods. Well, The broccoli I eat today has an 18th of the nutritional content of 30 years ago. Well, no wonder I have to eat so much broccoli because there's no nutrition in it. Well, now I need to improve my soil so I can grow broccoli that's not full of poison and and it just brought this whole consciousness of food is healing. Well, what is the quality of that food? And that's that regenerative agriculture. If we can improve our environments, our food, we're all going to be so much healthier and we're not going to be so susceptible to disease. And I think you'll see a lot of people with varying degrees of how sick they are is, well, what are they eating? What are they predispositioned for? And I, you know, am in this process of healing myself and my own farm. And it's just, it gives your life so much purpose when you can see what you're doing is making a difference.
0: So do you believe that the reason you got as sick as you did is because you were eating food that was grown on a traditional farm, as opposed to a farm that is using regenerative um, tools?
2: I, I think it's the onion, right? Like, uh, so I, when I first got hep diagnosed, I was mad. How dare my body let me down. And all of a sudden when it flipped, I was like, Oh my God, how did it make it this long? So I was burning the candle at both ends. I was going to the gym. I was eating garbage food. I could eat a bucket of ice cream because I was working out. What was I doing to my poor body that already was dealing with this one illness? Then I go get another one. Then I'm it, it, you know, taking pharmaceuticals. I'm trying all different types of things. My poor sweet body, how, I, I'm so impressed that it didn't fall apart sooner. So it was just this whole mindset of, society even women's lotions have estrogen in them and bad products like so from every single thing we do from existing in this country um, to Roundup, and our world is so toxic that anything we can be doing to remove those toxins at every single layer which is overwhelming but against that mental shift of consciousness and saying i'm not going to do it perfectly and i still buy foods from the grocery store and i am trying to grow my own food but that's like well, who has time to run five companies, grow their own food in the backyard and save the world? Like, you know, so it's it's the journey, right? Like how can we one day at a time make a better step than we did the day before?
0: <laughs> well, but Lauren, I, I really think does get to the heart of why we're seeing Lyme um Lyme disease and chronic Lyme disease um rates increasing um like you know like the war games uh, again uh, I'm dating myself again but you know the the war the war games map that we that we saw with Matthew Broderick where little by little by little by little we, the entire world gets destroyed by by all the nuclear waste. Well we're seeing the same thing happen with Lyme disease, right? And you know part of the part of the debate that we have in the community all the time is well why is that happening? Why why is it so bad? Is it because um, you know the, the bacteria uh, and the viruses are more viral because, uh, because they've been weaponized? Or is it really you know the pot boiling over, as Matt had discussed with you before, where we just have so much that our poor bodies have to harbor. Our food is shit. We have we, you know we have toxic mold, we have heavy metals. we have I mean, when you put that all together, how can you? How can it boil over? And really, it's really sort of the toxic load that our bodies are, are 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 unfortunately required to manage. And then we have these diseases that we had been able to manage for millions of years, and now we can't manage them anymore. So, what's your thoughts on on that?
2: I, I definitely agree. So my mother uh, will come to me like every two months in the summer with a new fresh tick bite, and I will send it off for testing and all that good stuff. And I just find that uh, generations before me are much more resilient. Why is that is that they had less poisoning for childhood, there were less toxins, I don't know. But I am finding that generationally, the younger they get the worse these things seem to do. And that's why it's so heartbreaking to watch the children who are the younger generations and have been exposed to toxins since day one, like, you know, at least I feel like I got a good decade or so under me to live More or less in the country, away from the toxins of every day. But then I moved to the city and all that stuff. So we are putting our bodies through so much. And it usually takes something in our life to make us conscious of that because otherwise we would just go through life eating McDonald's and just enjoying it and have a good old time. And then something is going to floor you and make you have to make those conscious decisions. And everybody has that different immune system, that different level. My my spouse has Lyme as well, and he is functional and he can do things. And there is, some very different childhood things that we went through. Are those the deciding factors? I don't know, but I do know some people can live entire lives with Lyme and be okay. And some can't and medically, Will we ever figure out why? I, I really hope so. <laughs> well,
0: and I, I have 400 other questions that I'd love to ask you, but unfortunately, we've taken way too much of your time, so maybe we can follow up. And I'm going to ask you one more question because it's just, yes. it's just uh, uh, a question that we keep coming across. Do you think there are gender differences in the presentation of chronic Lyme? And if you do, uh, do you have an opinion about why that may be?
2: Yes, I, I definitely think that the estrogen discussion becomes a big player in women with Lyme. So again, that liver become compromised, the estrogen gets built up and women are having more symptoms because of that estrogen issue. And we keep saying, well, oh, it's Lyme, your Lyme is worse. I think it's an estrogen paired with Lyme issue that make women's symptoms more severe. That doesn't exclude men, right? Because men can have est- estrogen issues as well. But I do find that women seem to be more heavily affected and I believe it's the hormone imbalances associated with it. Um, men seem to be able to respond to treatments better as well, and seem to be able to bounce back faster. And so, I do believe that seems to be the difference. And again, that's my unprofessional general experience. But we we all notice that there's a whole lot of women there and less men.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we certainly see that in our community that it's it's largely female. And I think I think folks who are afraid to you know touch on the gender differences, and I understand that as well. Um, and and there certainly can be. Uh, I I think elements of women being gaslit at a greater rate than men, that the medical system certainly is not as fair to women as it is to men. I think there are a lot of different factors, but there does seem to be an overwhelmingly larger number of women than men. And when we interview men, uh, in many cases, they'll say to Matt, well, finally, I'm talking to another guy because while I'm in the Lyme community, I very rarely get to talk to another guy. So. Um, you know, I think one of the virtues of going through what we went through with COVID, we saw that the male immune system was not as capable of managing COVID as the female system. So we're now sort of at least comfortable with seeing that there there are some, in some cases, gender differences with the way that diseases present and the immune system responds to them. So um, again, I, I I I have 400 other questions, but I will not uh, I will not uh, keep you any longer. As much as I'm enjoying the debate. Um, And I I do like to debate, as you can imagine. So it's really good to have a feisty guest the way we have uh, with you. So I'm going to ask you one last question. And it's a question that we ask everyone on Tick Bootcamp. I'm going to ask you if the wonderful man that you're married to, who's been so supportive of you, God forbid, came in with a tick biting him on his arm right after this podcast, what would you recommend that he do so he wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? Well,
2: I'll preface it as he is a man, and he has done this to me multiple times. We would say prevention, but you can't always win when... Tuck your socks into your pants, you know, so um, <laughs> so that has happened. Uh, we put it in a bag. We send it off for testing. We always elect for the extensive panel because I think just checking for Lyme is not enough. Check for AlphaGal, check for Cowesson, check for Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Those are very serious. And those are the things that I always uh, advocate for. We start a herbal protocol of Andrographis, which is the equivalent of Doxy in the herbal world. And we always pursue it for at least three weeks, whether or not that tick comes back negative or positive. If it's negative, we're a little bit closer in the clear, but we still continue it. So I just believe if you can hit it at the root and stop it from spreading, I think that's the best thing you can do. Again, doxy is also a great option. It's harder to get a hold of um, and a practitioner needs to authorize it. But take some advocacy effort to test the tick and to do something preventative in the meantime.
0: Lauren Lovejoy, you were an absolute pleasure. We really enjoyed this interview and we do want to invite you back because we do have 400 other issues we want to uh, interview you on and, and discuss with you. Uh, but thank you so much for spending time with the uh, folks at Tick Bootcamp.
2: Thank you so much for all you do and sharing the words.
0: Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Lauren Lovejoy. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Lauren Lovejoy and the Lime Warrior, please visit her Instagram page at chasing Napoleon. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick By Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past guests on this podcast. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note, we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you leave us. Thank you, as always, for listening.